This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. I know that was a uh, confusing uh, series of readings, but I'm covering a lot of ground tonight. So I just wanted to give a few different uh, selections from um, 2 Samuel 15 through 18. But I'll tell you more of the full story as we go throughout this. But uh, this is the last uh, sermon in the series on the life of David. And um, Laura didn't even read this part. But after that last reading, not too many verses down, uh, the, the main really plot line of the story ends with David mourning for his second son um, named Absalom. There's a famous William Faulkner novel based on this uh, called Absalom, Absalom. And in chapter 18, verse 33, this is what David says uh, in this cry of excruciating pain. One of the worst moments of his life, he says, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And just all the repetition of his son and his name over and over again. And that he would rather die than his son. It just shows you the crippling grief at this point in David's life. And this is near the end of the the life of David. And uh, it seems like a a terrible way to end his life. But is it really that surprising when you think about the full scope? If you pull back to 30,000 feet and you think about the full scope of David's life. If you've been following this at all, you know that uh, it really isn't that surprising that uh, God really has kind of put him in a blender ever since he called him to be the king. um, You know, it's like that thing that James Harden does in the NBA when he scores on someone and just completely gets them confused and out of out of sorts. Uh, God has just uh, befuddled and bewildered David his whole life ever since choosing him to be the king. And so if his life is like the Stock market, it's, it's certainly not like the, uh, you know, the, the last decade or so where it's just going up and up and up. Like a, it's not like a bull market. That's not the graph of David's life at all. And um, it's more like the stock market over the last 100 years, which has got plenty of ups but plenty of downs. So you've got the Great Depression of the 20s and the oil crisis of the 80s and the dot-com bubble of the 90s, the housing crash 2009 and uh, many others. But my point is that... Uh, his life is just like a pendulum or just uh, up and down like a sine wave. And it's, it's uh, never-ending trouble. And it could be depressing to you as you think, as if, you're a, if you're a Christian, you think, well, I thought that my life was supposed to get better and better and better. Uh, there was supposed to be like moral improvement throughout and, and, and all the hardships were supposed to go away. And uh, I was supposed to become happier and more joyful. Um, and I would just say to that, in one sense, that's not true at all. In fact, in one sense, the opposite is kind of true. I mean, as you grow older, your aches and pains increase. And you don't get over injuries nearly as quickly. 
And people uh, become more set in their ways and less radical and less willing to sacrifice as they get older generally. Um, these are generalizations, but people tend to get grumpier and more impatient. And so uh, it's not like that at all. Um, but I would say, as I've thought about the whole life of David, like, is there anything, is there, is there any kind of forward movement that we could expect as God relates to us throughout our lives? And what I would say is that uh, he definitely grows in terms of being humbled. And you see that really clearly in these passages, which is why I chose these ones in particular, just how much David has been humbled by God. And he, he grows in his, his ability to be grateful, I would say, and, uh, and just relinquishing things with his hands kind of wide open. His awareness of God's nearness as he's about to die grows. His thirst for God grows. And so I think that that is the hope to me as I think about the life of David. Um, that humility grows over the course of a person's life. And so I want to look at that and, and to help underline that point, to put it in contrast, if you put it on a black background, the humility kind of stands out. And the black background would be the life of Absalom, his son, or at least the part of the life of Absalom we see here, these last, the last decade of Absalom's life. So if David is characterized by humility, I would say Absalom is characterized by the opposite of that, which is pride and, uh, and arrogance and treason. Um, so I want to look at those two things. And I'll start actually with Absalom. This is the second son of David. And I'll catch you up to speed on what we've learned about Absalom so far. Uh, his, the first son of David, who was going to inherit the throne, is, was named Amnon. We looked at him last week. He was a wretched, uh, vile man who violated Absalom's sister. They, these were uh, from different uh, mothers, both from David. But he had multiple wives, which is, again, one of his sins as he took multiple wives. But Amnon, following in his father's footsteps, who also violated Bathsheba, uh, Amnon kind of picked that up from his dad, and, and he violated Absalom's sister, whose name was Tamar. We looked at that last week. And David uh, did nothing. We saw that last week, too. He did nothing at all to punish Amnon. He got angry, it says. But uh, we don't hear any kind of discipline at all. And I think the reason, because he was so morally weakened by his own sin. And at this point, you can tell that Absalom begins to hate his father. It doesn't say that, but you can just tell if you read between the lines that his hostility is growing uh, as he thinks about his father's weakness. And it's so much that he actually, um, he takes justice in his own hands. And he waits for a couple of years, and then he calls Amnon out to a party he's about to have, and he kills his brother. Uh, he kills Amnon. Because David didn't do anything. And, and now, at that point, we kind of pick up from here on out. And what happens next is that uh, Absalom has to flee to the wilderness because he's afraid of his dad's wrath. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't know exactly how uh, David would um, think about him now that he's killed David's first son, Amnon. So you can already imagine the difficulty of Absalom relating to his dad in this way. And so he, he flees to the wilderness for several years. But this is what Absalom doesn't know, is that David, as complex as ever, his heart yearns for Absalom. And it says that in 1339, in 2 Samuel 1339, it says, The spirit of the king longed to go out 
to Absalom. So you can imagine that David even just like dreaming of taking a trip out to see his son in the wilderness, or at least to calling him back. But he doesn't do it because he's so emotionally paralyzed. He's kind of stuck and uh, he can't move forward. So he doesn't do anything. And he lets Absalom just kind of fester in exile for three years. I mean, imagine your relationship with your dad being that bad. For three years, they won't see each other. And then finally, Joab, who is David's general, who is not known for his peacemaking skills. Joab tends to be more of someone who kills people rather than being a peacemaker. But Joab can tell that if, if Absalom and David are at odds and Absalom's going to inherit the throne, Joab, Joab sees like there's a civil war coming. So we can't let that happen. So Joab actually goes to David and he says, you need to bring... Absalom back. You've got to forgive him. It's been three years. We've got to restore the kingdom to unity. And David actually does listen to him. And so he allows Absalom to come back to Jerusalem. But it's very half-hearted. And so in uh, chapter 14, verse 24, this is what David says to uh, Joab. And this is just a really emotionally immature man. Listen to this. He says to Joab, go ahead and let Absalom come back to Jerusalem. That's fine. But let him dwell in his own house apart from me. He is not to come into my presence. So it's kind of like his spirit longs for him. He brings him back. He kind of wants to reconcile. He doesn't really want to reconcile. He want to keep, keep him at a distance a little bit. And uh, he's a very emotionally complex man. And again, this is, this is like all of us, isn't it? That uh, in our relationship with our parents, siblings, uh, there's this complexity of emotions. And you certainly see that with uh, David and Absalom. And for two years, Absalom is in Jerusalem. He's been called back and he's not allowed to see the king. And this must be humiliating for Absalom, that he's not even allowed to go in and see his dad. And so Joab finally goes to him again, Joab, the peacemaker, after two years of this, so three years in exile, Two years in Jerusalem, not being able to see his dad, kind of uh, humiliated by that. And finally, Joab comes to David and says, look, David, you brought him back here. This is ridiculous that you're allowing him to just fester and grow in anger and hostility in his own little house. He can't come in the palace even. And so once again, David, uh, emotionally weak as ever, he, he reluctantly allows him to come back into his presence. And listen to this restoration of their relationship. You know, picture the frigid reunion here. And again, think about your, um, your own family maybe where you might have seen this or a cousin. or These things happen. There's been no contact for seven years. They have not seen each other. There was no email. There was no texting, no FaceTime. There's been no, no sight of the others for seven years. And they're about to see each other. And you can just picture... Uh, the tension in Absalom. He's he's about to open that door to the throne room. And it says in chapter 14, verse 33, David summoned Absalom and Absalom came to the king and he bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. That's his son, but that's what you're supposed to do with a king. So this is his son bowing to his dad, probably reluctantly, even though for this seven years he's been humiliated. And it says, and the king kissed Absalom. And that's the last we read of any personal interaction between them. And when I think about that kiss, I I think of a very frigid uh, kind of, 
you know, royalty, the British royalty kind of kiss where it's like they barely have their lips touch their cheek. I feel like that's the kind of kiss that we saw between David and Absalom. There was no conversation. Uh, There were no hugs. There was no come back to the palace and be my heir, my son, how I've longed for you. You know, the way that he he cries out to God when Absalom dies. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, how how I would have loved to die instead of you. But at this point, he can't do anything but just give him this frigid, superficial, cold and formal kiss on the cheeks. And uh, and this is where I think Absalom has just had enough of his dad. And so the next thing you read in chapter 15, verse 1, is Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men and had them run before him. And if you have 50 men run before you and you're on your chariot and horses, that, what is that signal? What is that a, a symbolic gesture of? And the answer is that you're going to be the king. And so he's plotting a coup, uh, a takeover here. And listen to how treasonous and how uh, slippery he is, how serpentine he is. Uh, This is uh, chapter 15, verse 2. He already begins to act like he's the king. And again, David is so weak. He's just sitting in the palace kind of doing nothing. And here's Absalom, his son, out there rising early, it says. He would stand beside the city gate. And when anyone would come into the city with a dispute to bring it to the king... This is the way you did justice. You came into Jerusalem. You went to the king's throne. You and this person uh, had the dispute before the king, and the king settled the dispute. Well, Absalom's out there, and he would say, oh, I, I totally understand your case. Uh, I, I, I feel for you. I feel your pain. But uh, the king doesn't really have any time for you. He doesn't want to see you. And so, you know, go ahead and let me have the, make the decision right here. And, and how I would love to be the king of the land. Wouldn't... Israel would be a great place if I were the king. So he does this for years. Uh, And eventually in chapter 15, verse 6, it says, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He's very cunning, very clever, uh, very hateful, very arrogant. You can somewhat, up to this point I kind of liked him, but now at this point you see uh, the evil in his heart where he's, He's stealing his dad's kingdom. Uh, He's planning to kill his dad, which he he would have to do if he became the king. Starting an insurrection. And he would also start a civil war in Israel. And that indeed does happen when he takes over the throne. So he takes over the throne. He blows the trumpet. He has his men say, Absalom is our king. And they come riding to Jerusalem. And David sees the writing on the wall. And he leaves the city. And um, this terrible battle occurs between David and his troops and Absalom and his troops. And they go out to this forest called the Forest of Ephraim. And 20,000 Hebrew brothers die in battle fighting each other. In this needless war. Because of Absalom. Which was because of David. And it says in chapter 18 verse 6. The forest devoured more people that day than the sword. So I don't know what happened there. But they they were getting impaled I guess by... Uh, it's not like the forest was like ants that were killing them, but there was some way the forest was killing more than 10,000 soldiers. Uh, 20,000 people died. In, in the Battle of Antietam, which is the, the bloodiest battle of the Civil War, 32,000 people died. So this is, this is a really bad... This is back before there were guns and machine guns. And 20,000 Hebrew lives because of Absalom 
and his monstrous pretension and his pride and his anger. Which is, again, somewhat understandable at the beginning, but at this point, uh, even David didn't get to that place. Uh, This is like a, you know, I think of him like a social justice warrior gone wrong, who who was appropriately angry at things, things gone bad, but um, he despises authority so much that he just looks down on what anyone of an older generation, especially his parents, believed. Uh, he felt very morally superior, as if, he, as if he alone knew how to bring justice, and, and his dad had no idea at all. And uh, a lot of virtue signaling, expressing how he was uniquely spirited in his outrage against the injustice. So uh, he had this really long hair, I think about Che Guevara or something like that. Um, he had this long hair, which is kind of a parable of his arrogance. I think it's interesting that the writer actually pauses for one verse to, to let us know how much he thought of his hair. And it says in chapter 15, uh, 14, verse 26, Absalom would cut his hair only once a year. And after he would cut it, he would put it on the scales and he would weigh it. And he would, he would delight in the fact that it was five pounds of hair. I don't know much about hair, but I imagine that's a lot of hair. Five pounds of hair. And so Absalom was very proud of his hair which is a, kind of a, almost like a sacrament of the pride of his heart. It was an outward display of an inward reality. Uh, this kind of romantic freedom fighter. You know, I can imagine him, with, if, he, if he was alive today, he would have printed t-shirts with his portrait on it in black and white. And passed them out to all of Israel. But ironically, his, his hair becomes his downfall. And in the battle of the forest of Ephraim... It says in chapter, 19, chapter 18, verse 9, Absalom uh, tried to escape from David's men on his mule. They rode mules back then in battle. But as he rode beneath the thick branches of a great oak tree, his hair got caught in the tree, his long hair that he was so proud of. Uh, it must have been right after he had cut his, uh, I mean, towards the end of the year after he had cut his hair earlier in the year. And his mule kept going and left him dangling in the air. And uh, it's just a, a pathetic uh, moment of, of justice, uh, where poetic justice, where he is caught by his own pride in the tree. And then Joab, uh, as hateful and bloodthirsty as ever, he takes three spears and he impales Absalom with three spears. Even though David had told Joab not to kill his son, that's the last thing he said, whatever you do, do not kill my son. And Joab pierces him three times. Um, one time, you know, after another, almost like as a form of torture. As he's hanging in this um, tree by his hair. And if all that's not bad enough, the, the saddest thing, and I love how the commentary here um, is, again, like this, this kind of cutting... Uh, understated sarcasm about Absalom, but in 1818, chapter 18, verse 18, listen to this. Uh, This is right after his body had been thrown into a pit, the most ignominious death possible. Okay, his body is thrown into the pit. Uh, This is the worst fate you could ever have befall you. He's not even given a proper burial. And then it says this, Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself a pillar after his own name and called it Absalom's Monument. And it is called that to this day. So think of the contrast there. His body is rotting in a pit. 
And meanwhile, he has like the Lincoln Memorial erected next to him that, so that he would never be forgotten. And I feel like that is a picture of the, the poverty of human pride. Um, how pathetic we are in our um, pride. Dressed in our little brief authority, most ignorant of what we're most assured. Plays such fantastic tricks before high heaven as to make the angels weep. That's the way Shakespeare puts it. And I think this is in all of us. We're, we're kidding ourselves if we think that's just Absalom. Um, we, too, think our parents are fools. A lot of the time we have major authority issues like Absalom. We store up anger like Absalom. We think that we are the standard of justice like him. We admire our appearance, or at least we would like to admire our appearance, or make monuments of ourselves. We try to be remembered in different ways. And I say all this simply as a way of contrast to David. And now, in light of Absalom, think about David and the way he's humbled. And the, the great difference between he and his son. This is what God is tearing out of us. You know, like there's, uh, at the budget inn near our house uh, on Peters Creek Parkway, I'm glad to say they're going to tear it down, finally. And right now they're tearing out the asbestos. And that's what, that's what God tore out of David's life. That's what he has to tear out of our lives, this pride. The pride of Absalom. And that leads to this idea of David's humility. So uh, I believe that the, the way that you see this most, and uh, I wish we could have read the whole thing, but the way David leaves Jerusalem is so beautiful and so touching uh, that when I read it again this week, uh, for the, you know, I read it several times this week, but I became more and more moved by it. And actually I started to cry one time when I thought about the way that uh, David has this stunning realization of his belovedness. And it, it crashes upon him in his weakest moment, when he's weeping and covering his head um, as he's going out of the city because his son is coming to take over. He probably thinks he's going to die. He thinks everybody hates him now. And there's this just tidal wave of affection that crashes into him. And I love how the author dwells on it. The whole of chapter 15 is dwelling on and a lot of 16, just how he left Jerusalem. It's kind of like the action slows down a lot. And the author wants you to see this. So this is chapter 15, verse 18. All of David's servants passed before him. The Carathites, the Pelathites, 600 Gittites from Gath. From Gath. Goliath was, Goliath was from Gath. A lot of the people that come out to greet him as he's leaving are foreigners. And you realize that one of David's uh, key uh, insights into life was that he welcomed in everyone. He welcomed in Gentiles constantly into his life. Right into the heart of his mighty men, he had Gentiles. But uh, David is shocked by all these uh, 600 Gittites and then all the Carathites and the Pel. They all come and like line up on the hills of Jerusalem and kind of like salute him as he's leaving. Knowing that they can't really do a lot about it, but... They can show him how much they respect and admire and love him. And David is shocked by this. And he tells him, you know, go back to Jerusalem. Don't, don't risk your life for me. And then they say in verse 21, chapter 15, Never, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servants be. And, uh, and everyone is weeping with him. In chapter 15, verse 23, all the land wept aloud as the king crossed the brook Kidron. 
and passed on towards the wilderness. David, by the way, leaves Jerusalem by the Mount of Olives just as Jesus came into Jerusalem by the Mount of Olives. And that's not a coincidence. Jesus intentionally came in by the Mount of Olives in the same way that David left. And uh, even the priests, like Abiathar, the high priest, he comes out and he brings out the Ark of the Covenant, which you're really not supposed to move. Um, It's supposed to stay in the most holy place, but the priests come out. Zadok, the high priest, Abiathar, all the Levites, that's, that's chapter 15, verse 24. They came up and they were bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. So the most precious holy item in the universe they bring and show him as he's leaving to show him how much he's loved. There's this overwhelming display of affection that the narrator gives to us about David. And I, I believe that that more than anything may have humbled him. I thought about if, if, um, if you work somewhere 30 years, you know, let's say I, I've, I've been here maybe 15. Let's say I'm here 15 more years. I work here 15 years. And at the end of your career in this job, um, things start going badly and you do a really poor job. And maybe even you're, um, you're made redundant, as they say in England, which means you're fired. And so uh, 30 years on the job and one day you realize you don't have your job anymore. And you think nobody's going to care as I, as I leave this place. You know, they tell you, go back to the office right now. You have, you have 30 minutes to pack up and leave. So you, you go back to pack up your things and, and then your, um, your assistant comes over and... and uh, and helps you pack up your stuff. And right there you feel like, oh, well, someone does actually care about me. And then you start walking down the hall and one of the janitors comes over and he, he gives you a huge hug and tells you how much it's meant to him that you've always been kind to him. And then you walk by your partner's office and she calls you in and she gives you a card and she's gone around and gotten everyone to sign this card um, in 30 minutes and, and they tell you how much they love you. Uh, your partner, who you didn't even think cared about you at all. And then as you pass by the front desk, the receptionist comes up and, and they're weeping. And they say, it's never going to be the same around here when you're gone. And again, you think nobody cares about you. But when you get to your car, um, your boss is waiting there with a huge bonus check. You know, the one that had to let you go. And, uh, and says they, they, they think you're fantastic. And uh, your 30 years have been so valuable to the company. And then as you drive out of the parking lot, uh, they've managed to create a banner that says, we'll miss you forever. Something like that. I mean, that'll probably never happen to any of us. But that's, that's what happens to David in a, in a time of great humility. And I, I think one thing that I, I, I get from that is that we, we need to realize how loved we are by other people. And I, I wish David could have known how much these Pelethites and Gittites and Sherathites and Zadok and Abiathar, how much they admired him and loved him the day before he went out of the city and was exiled. And if you're like me, you just kind of block it out when people say things about you that are signs of affection. Why do we do that? Just block out, like, they didn't really mean that, or I see why they were saying that, or that's not really true about me. They're just being nice. Uh, verse 30 says, All the people covered their heads weeping as they went. And I think about people who leave our church sometimes, and um, I'll, I like to, to meet with them before they leave, if I can. And one thing I like to tell them is, I, I say, this is not to guilt you at all into coming back, but I do want you to know that people are going to miss you here. Like, don't imagine that when you leave here, 
nobody will notice. Because a lot of times they think that. They think, oh, nobody's going to notice. Uh, it's going to be fine without us. Things will be exactly the same. And I always say, don't underestimate how much people care about you. That's just not true. Um, we're going to miss you terribly. As they miss David. But we always deceive ourselves. We always underestimate how much people love us out there. But David somehow does not underestimate it here. That at this point, in this moment of tremendous humiliation, he gets it. And I'll tell you the times I've gotten it were the two times that I was in a hospital and almost died. And the, the affection that came in those moments, when someone visited me in those moments, that's when, for some reason, and being hooked up to machines where you can't even move, and someone comes and, and, and tells you they love you, uh, that's when you begin to get it. Uh, in, in chapter 16, verse 14, it says, The king and all the people with him arrived weary at the Jordan River. Weary. When you're weary and you're down and out, uh, and you need a friend, that's when love can actually pierce you somehow. And I would say that humility happens when you know you're loved in a situation like that. And you can, you can begin to kind of let things go a little bit with your, your life. You can give up a little bit of control of your schedule. Uh, I love how David responds in chapter 15, verse 25, where um, the priests offer to, to, to go with him and take the ark with him. So that the ark will be with him at all times. And, and David says, no, 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 carry the ark back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back. I'm putting myself in his hands. I'm not going to control this. I'm not going to steer the ship. I'm going to let God do what God's going to do. With my life. With my health. With whether I live anymore. And look at, um, look at 1526. This is when David is being mocked. Uh, He says, let him do to me what seems good to him. Again, there's there's a relinquishment here. There's an abandonment to God's providence here. It's very beautiful and very humble. And he's very weak and frail when he does this. And I hope that it's possible to do this somewhat before we get to that place in life. But he knows that when uh, Shimei comes and mocks him, he knows that he has no right to retaliate. This guy is hurling insults at him. Chapter 16, verse 5. He's continually cursing and throwing stones. And he says, get out, you worthless man. This is Shimei of the house of Saul. You can understand why he would hate David. Uh, He was was of the house of Saul that David uh, overcame. And uh, and so Abishai, who is the brother of Joab, who is very uh, bloodthirsty, let's say. Abishai says... Uh, why should this dead dog curse the king? Let me go over and take off his head. And David says, absolutely not. I'm sick of that stuff. I've, I've been doing that my whole life. You know, David did that already several times. He, he, he just exploded with violence and killed people. But David says, leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. And I think that's another sign of humility. Uh, Who am I to oppose him, he says in verse 10. Who am I to oppose Shimei? This is what God has for me. I'm going to let go. And sometimes your your life uh, might feel like a maze of success and failure and good times and bad times. Sometimes in the same week, in the same day even. Um, There will be great victories over sin. And then, like, 
maybe an hour later, this massive moral failing. Sometimes they're a year apart or a month apart, but you can't believe that you could have done this and this. And also with pain, sometimes you, you are put in a place of pain by God that you could never have imagined he would let you go as his child. But that happens. That happened to David. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, who I would have died for. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Um, and all of that, somehow, there is this purpose. There's, there's movement. And we see that, that, that there's a growth in gratitude in David. There's a resignation. There's a thirst for God. And these are the key ingredients, I think, of, of humility. My favorite song about sanctification, what we're talking about here is really sanctification, how you grow in holiness, how you grow in holiness. And this is my favorite song, and I, I tell people this a lot who are going through really hard things. Uh, it's called, I Asked the Lord. And this guy asks the Lord um, that he might grow in faith and love and every grace, might, might know of his salvation more and seek more earnestly his faith. So this guy wants to grow in grace and love and uh, in faith, to know God more. So he, he's asking God this. He's praying to God for this, uh, this noble thing that we all pray for at times, at the best times. And, and his hope is that in some favored hour, at once, God would answer his request and by God's love-constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. So he's hoping that God would just make him virtuous. You know, zap me with virtue, with your magic wand. And make me never look at porn again and make me never lie again. Make me never get angry at my child again. Make me never gossip again. But instead, God made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. I mean, that's David right there, isn't it? God made me feel the hidden evil of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. The extent to which he's... allows us to be given over to our temptation is sometimes staggering as a Christian. He aggravated my woe. He crossed all of my fair designs. He humbled my heart and laid me low. And this guy is like, why would you let that happen to me? And in the last verse, God says, to set you free from self and pride, to break all of your schemes of earthly joy, so that you would find your all in me. And I think that's what happened to David. Um, that eventually God was helping him to become the man who would write these amazing psalms of desperate longing for God. You know, they call David a man after God's own heart. And, and sometimes you think, well, that means like a, he's like a chip off the old block. You know, he's like, like you know, that, the, the son, my son, the apple doesn't far. Uh, fall far from the tree, that kind of thing. That's not what it means, because God is not like David. What it means is like, David is a man after God's own heart, like a dog goes after a bone. A man who's desperately longing for God. Psalm 42.1, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. When shall I come and appear before God? He yearns for God. Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You can imagine him writing those words when he's out in the exile and his son Absalom is in Jerusalem. And I can tell you that the longer I live, and I'm not that old, but 
I've lived my fair share of years, and the more I live, the more I cannot wait for him to return. And I would say with Psalm 62, with David, for God alone my soul wait in silence, for all my hope is from him. And I would say more than anything, the theme of David's life is that he grew in longing for this promise that God had made to him. In 2 Samuel 7, where God said to David, your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever, and your throne will be established forever. And I think that, more than the life of David, uh, 1st and 2nd Samuel are about that. They're about this kingdom that is moving forward, like a giant uh, you know, oil tanker in some kind of massive rogue waves. I love rogue waves, like 100 foot tall waves. I YouTube those, and sometimes you'll see like this giant tanker that like goes up almost like it's going to tip over and just comes crashing back in a 100-foot wave. And that Second Samuel 7 promise of this house, this eternal house and kingdom from David just keeps going through the, the people's sinful desire for a king and David scheming to be the king and Bathsheba and Tamar and Absalom's rebellion and then Assyria... Babylon, the exile, Caiaphas and Pilate and Golgotha and on and on and on. The, the ship just keeps moving forward. And although the, the polar ice caps look like they're melting and the seas are rising and it looks like cities will possibly begin to be drowned and, and America will fall. America will fall. I don't know how long that will be. Hopefully, um, not sooner than later. But, but we know that the, the kingdom will not fall. The second Samuel 7, that's what David's about. That ship that's moving forward. And it's, a, it's, a, it can't, it's unsinkable because it's, it's, it's shaped like a cross. And so when terrible things happen, it's ready for that. And this table is a picture of the kingdom that uh, is built um, to go right through.